Beloved, our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 99, verses 1 through 3 and 5 and 9. It's good to remind ourselves with these truths. The Lord reigneth. Let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the people. Let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. Exalt ye the Lord our God, and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. Exalt the Lord our God, and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Continue reading in Scripture, New Testament, a letter to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, and to Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Wherefore, Though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. Whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him that is mine own bowels, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldest receive him forever. Not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me. But how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay it. Albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. But withal prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. 
There salute thee Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Beloved, our text for this morning is from Philemon. As we continue working our way through this one-chapter book, verses 8 through 11, verses 8 through 11 this morning. Last time we considered how Paul began this short, personal, but public letter to Philemon regarding the return of Onesimus. We saw that he began the letter with gospel rhetoric, referring to their relationship in the gospel within in Jesus Christ, the bonds that Christ had established. He addresses Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus, and the church in Colossae with fraternal greetings, brotherly greetings. He greets them with the peace and grace of God. We saw how that peace and grace established the vertical relationship with God and sustains the horizontal relationship between believers in the church. Finally, he demonstrates his heart for Philemon by sharing his prayers for Philemon, thanksgiving. As he thinks of Philemon, he gives thanks to God for the evident love and and warm hospitality that Philemon has shown to believers in the church at Colossae. He prays, if you remember, for Philemon's spiritual growth particularly in the case of receiving Onesimus back. In a sense, he's appealing to to Philemon. He's saying, you are well known for your love and for your hospitality, for receiving believers. Now, here's a test, as it were, for you. Will you receive Onesimus back as a brother? Will your love be even more evident for this brother who has wronged you before but upon whom the Lord has wrought a great change. Paul prays for Philemon's fruit to be exercised and bear even richer fruit. We left last week's message, didn't we, with the sense that the difficult things in the Christian life, particularly the stresses and and challenges and blessings of relationship within the context of the body of Christ, present abundant opportunity for spiritual fruit to grow. In fact, spiritual fruit can often be gauged not merely by inward attitudes, but by those attitudes resulting in action. Those attitudes resulting in action. So spiritual fruit can often be gauged not merely by inward attitudes, though that's important, because it's the inward attitude that gives way to the outward action of bearing spiritual fruit. So Paul is keen to see this fruit exercised and brought forth in Philemon. Even as he's seen fruit abound in the life of Onesimus. And so we get this picture that when God is working in one person, in one relationship. He's often also working in other relationships 
within the context of the body, within the context of the church. And so as God worked on Onesimus and bringing him to faith in Christ, so he's also working on Philemon in order for Philemon to receive Onesimus back. God's also working in the heart of the Apostle Paul. None of this bypasses Paul either. And so when God works in the church in one relationship, He's often working on multiple levels and layers in the lives and hearts of other people that are associated. Hence, Paul can say, if one member of the body suffers, the entire body suffers. And so really, we have here the doctrine of the church. Paul lays the foundation for Philemon to be able to exercise spiritual growth in the first seven verses. Now, in verses 8 through 11, he's going to make an appeal to Philemon so he can pluck that fruit, as it were. He makes an appeal for Onesimus, an appeal that will challenge Philemon, but an appeal from the heart of Paul designed to to glorify and honor the Lord Jesus Christ in in the intricate web of all these relationships that are taking place within the church of Colossae and the prison in Rome. And so our theme for this morning is this, an appeal from the heart. First of all, we see that this appeal is based on love. It's based on love. Paul begins his appeal with a statement in verse 8. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient... As we look at Paul's appeal, we need to, we need to isolate the aim, the motive. What, what does Paul want Philemon to do? Verse 8 gives us the answer. To enjoin that which is convenient. We can say it another way. Philemon, I'm asking you to do what is right. I'm asking you to do what is right. Paul is concerned that Philemon act according to the standards of God's love. He wants Philemon to do that which conforms to God's standards, not his own. Philemon's fleshly standards might say that he can't receive Onesimus back. He's wronged him. He's he's run away. He's stolen his property. How can he receive this man back when there's no restitution? But Paul makes his appeal. He says, I want you to do what is right, Philemon. That should be the concern of a believer in every relationship in which God places us to do what is right. Paul is concerned with Philemon bearing fruit in his life. The only way that you and I can bear spiritual fruit is to do what is right. Obedience to God's standards yields spiritual fruit. But how will Paul persuade Philemon to do what is right? Paul could have said, Philemon, you know this is right to receive Onesimus back. You know how the gospel works. Just do it. That's not how Paul approaches this delicate issue. He says, wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient... You notice what Paul says there? He's saying, I could use my boldness in Christ to persuade you and move you to do what is proper, what is right. 
Paul uses a strong word here for enjoying. He says, I could order you to do this because of my boldness in Christ. He could have used his apostleship to to order a reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus, but he doesn't do that. That wasn't the best possible way to achieve reconciliation between these two brothers now. Paul was very careful in how he exercised his apostolic authority. He didn't use it as a hammer to, to get and to achieve his aim. He could do that, but he chose not to. And there were instances in which Paul had to exercise his authority as an apostle, in which he had to order certain churches to do what was right, but not in this case. Paul demonstrates the heart of his Savior as he takes the road of of meekness, the power and the authority that he had as an apostle. he, He keeps that under control. That's meekness, isn't it? To know when to use power and authority. And when to lay it aside and make an appeal based on love. He could have used his authority in Christ. He could have proclaimed boldly to Philemon that Philemon had to do this. Paul could have simply said, Philemon, you have to do this because I said so. I'm an apostle. By the authority granted to me as an apostle of Jesus Christ, I command you to do this. But Paul employs a different way of motivating Philemon to receive Onesimus. He says, though I could do this, yet I'm appealing based on love. Verse 9, he writes, yet for love's sake, I rather beseech thee. For love's sake, Philemon, I encourage you. I don't order you, I encourage you. Paul is much more likely to gain his objective by encouraging rather than by ordering reconciliation. Yet for love's sake, I rather encourage you, Philemon. What love is Paul talking about? Is it the report? Or is it his love for Philemon and for for Onesimus? That certainly plays into this, doesn't it? Paul loved them both as brothers. And so he could say, he could be saying here, for the love that I have for both of you, I encourage you to reconcile. Or is it the report of Philemon's love for the saints that Paul spoke about in verses 4 through 7? That too is is part of this equation. Yet for love's sake, Philemon, you're well known for love that you've shown to the brothers. Now, here's the test case of that love. Will you receive Onesimus back? Not as a servant now, but as a brother. Will you exercise that love for a returning prodigal? Well, this love, too, was part of it. But if the grace and peace of God sustains horizontal relationships. It's the love of Christ that Paul is referring to here. He says, though I have much boldness in Christ, though I have much spirit-worked authority in Christ, yet now I'm appealing to this, this love of Christ 
that he's worked in our hearts. Because your outward display of love has to be fueled by the love of Christ. The love that existed between Paul and Philemon and between Paul and Onesimus is nothing else but the love of Christ. The love that that Philemon had shown to, to believers in the church of Colossae, that was nothing but the love of Christ. The love that Paul desires to grow in Philemon's life is the love of Christ. Yet for love's sake, I make my appeal. For love's sake, I encourage you, Philemon, to do what is right and proper. We need to remember that what Paul is appealing to here is not a feeling. It's not a feeling. The cultural creed of our day says this, love is love. That's as meaningless as any statement you could ever read. Love is love. What does that mean anyway? You can define it however you want. But Paul is appealing to love as commitment. He's appealing to love as a commitment. The world standard says you can define love however you want. You can show love when you feel like it. Or if someone has been unlovable to you, you don't have to show love to them because that would not be showing justice to them at all. But God's standard of love, beloved, is, is not merely to act in love when you feel like it. But love is a commitment to do the acts of love regardless of how you feel. That is what is proper in this instance between Philemon and Onesimus. He is called to show the love that Christ has shown to him. The committed love of Christ as he went to the cross, as he hung there for Philemon. That was committed love. It's a powerful appeal from Paul's heart that is constrained by the love of Christ. For love's sake, I encourage you to reconcile with Onesimus. I greeted you with grace and peace. That's where this appeal of love from the heart is sustained from and can be carried out from. Will you not do what is right and proper, not just because I could command you, but because of the love of Christ that He's shown us, that we show to each other as brothers in Christ? Love is commitment. Philemon, I appeal to that love. What does this teach us about strengthening and reconciling relationships within the church, within our families, within the other spheres of life in which we move? Well, it lays down this principle, doesn't it? When we seek to do what is proper and what is according to God's standards, what is often the best way of moving towards that goal? Paul gives us the answer. It's not a raw display of our authority that will move people to do what is right and good, by which we unilaterally command someone. There are times for that within the context of family, of parents to children. 
But if that's the only way that we relate to our children, what is the end product for our children? We'll turn them into good Pharisees that fear our authority but know nothing of the love of Christ. There are times where we need to exercise that authority also within the church. But if we would display our raw authority as as ministers, as elders and deacons, what would the church look like? A large group of people that toe the line but miss the heart of obedience and the heart of love that Paul encourages here. You see, the more excellent way of of moving others towards Christian duty, particularly within relationships, is an appeal based on the love of Christ, as Paul does it here. Based on the love of Christ towards us who are believers, based on the love of Christ within us, based on the love of Christ that binds us together. It affects all sorts of relationships as parents and children. What would our families look like if we sought to encourage our children to the good through the love of Christ? What would our marriages look like if we chose the more excellent way to to encourage one another to do what is good based on the love of Christ, based on the commitment of love that seeks to do love's actions even when our spouse is not acting right towards us or when we don't feel like showing love to them? So often we say, well, I need to feel something before I do something. The gospel logic of love says, no, we are committed to do the actions of love, and the feelings will follow. What would our marriages look like if we lived more in that way, as Paul is laying out for us here? Because our relationships as parents and children, as as spouses with each other, they just can't be isolated to the home, can they? It spills over into the life of the church because we are a body, one with another. So how we relate to each other at home and within marriage is going to affect how we relate to each other within the church. How would the church look like if we exercise this principle of encouraging to love based upon love to do the good rather than running roughshod over each other with authority. I'm not saying we never can exercise our authority, but to be discerning, to show the actions of love to to a church member who hasn't treated us well, even when we don't feel like it. When they've wronged us, as in this case, Onesimus wronged Philemon. But we show the actions of love because of what Christ has done for us. Will we be encouraged to the good this morning based on love? Not any definition of love, but the very love of Christ. As we look to the cross this morning, that is the definition of love.
He stayed there. He died there. He suffered the wrath of God there. That's commitment. That is love for sinners. And if you have tasted of that love, doesn't that motivate you to the good? To do what is right, to do what is proper according to God's standards. Isn't this what is going to to bear much spiritual fruit in our lives and the life of the church? It's an appeal from the heart. Paul is reflecting the heart of, of Christ as he makes this appeal. Yet for love's sake, I rather encourage you. The appeal is also based on Paul's persona. It's an interesting aspect of this letter. As we read verse 9, we might say, why is Paul inserting himself here? What is he trying to prove by appealing to himself? Is this not prideful? Not at all. I think it's speaking to the dynamic that takes place in human relationships. That calls us to consider who it is that's making the appeal. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, Philemon, you know who I am. He brings himself to Philemon's mind. He's built up relational capital over time. He's, he's going to spend it here, not for himself. That's what we need to remember. When Paul inserts himself here, it's not for himself. It's for Onesimus. We see the principle of substitution appearing here. Paul is inserting himself into the equation as as the mediator in this relationship to rebuild the relationship. Again, showing something of Christ as he seeks reconciliation. He's inserting himself so that Philemon will respond favorably and be encouraged to do what is proper. Paul says in verse 9, Yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. The word that Paul uses there for aged is the word that we use for elder. It's the Greek word presbyteros, or presbyt- uh, we get the word presbytery or presbyterian from. The rule of elders. Some think that Paul is referring to his office as an elder here. That would go against what Paul is saying in verse 8, that he could appeal to his authority as an apostle, as an elder, but that's not what he's about. He's simply using that word there as aged. The word can be simply used as one who is old, and that's how he's using it here. He's likely around 60 years of age when he's writing this, this letter. An old age, considering the life expectancy in the Roman Empire at that time, was only about 45 to 50 or even younger. Why does Paul do this? Because age in the ancient world conveyed a sense of of weight, conveyed a sense of of gravity, of pull. So Paul is saying here, "I'm, I'm an old man would have spoken of of respect. Philemon would have responded with respect. 
And again, this is something we've lost in our, in our modern culture where old age is something to be ridiculed and confined to, to, care, to, to homes of care rather than to be taken in within the body and, and respected and drawn upon. So here we're learning something as well as Paul speaks as an aged one. He's elevating the status of the hoary head as Proverbs 16 speaks of it. As Paul invokes his age, what would Philemon think about? A man who's had much life experience. A man who's faced persecution for the sake of Christ. A man who had sacrificed much for the cause of the gospel. A man of profound spiritual maturity. A man who called for respect. But more than respect, it also carried a certain level of warmth. It's also a relational term. Paul is speaking here as a, as a father, as it were. As a father to Philemon. I'm aged, Philemon. Give attention to, to the words. Give attention to the request that I'm going to, to make of you. Young people, how often don't we blow off the advice of someone who's older than us? We say, well, those people can't relate to us. They didn't grow up in the digital world that we grew up in. They, they don't know what we're going through. Chances are they do, and they have something to teach you. There's nothing new under the sun. Maybe they didn't grow up with an iPhone in their hands, but they certainly have life experience. They certainly have spiritual maturity that you can glean from. That's what we can learn from this. We need to pay attention when those who are older speak into our lives. Not just to blow them off and go our own way, but to learn, to think, to take what is useful and what is good and apply it to your life and learn to live according to God's standard. As Paul is encouraging Philemon to do here by invoking his old age. Then, too, Paul adds again that he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. We saw that in the opening last Sunday morning. He comes in low so that he can encourage Philemon to do what is convenient, not manipulating, but motivating Philemon for what is good and what is right. Paul's persona as a prisoner would have spoken volumes to Philemon so that he would receive Onesimus. Paul didn't wear his age or his imprisonment as a badge. But they lent a certain weight to his appeal that Philemon could hardly refuse. There is, that, there is this dynamic, isn't there, in personal relationships of the older speaking into the lives of the younger. Pastors speaking into the life of the church. The elders on family visitation speaking into the life of the family. The leadership of the church as we lead the church in times of challenge, times of, of joy, times of, of growth. Parents with children. Mentors with mentees. People that we relate to within the body of the church. Are we using our personas to achieve what is good or are we, are we forcing people 
into a particular mold? Are we furthering the cause of those who who need help? So often, we want to wear our personas as a badge of what we've experienced or what we've done. We call people to, to look at ourselves, but let's learn this morning that when Paul makes his appeal based on his persona, he's, he's inserting himself into the equation for the good of others. So that he, this relationship between Philemon and Onesimus might be healed and they might relate to each other as brothers in the gospel, as brothers in Christ. Do we assert, insert, ourselves into particular problems within the church because we think we know everything how to fix that problem or do we demonstrate the heart of Christ and come and seek to be a mediator in order to achieve healing and restoration and reconciliation or whatever it is that we're trying to achieve Paul makes the appeal based on his persona, not to elevate himself, but to serve others. Let's learn from this, to have the heart of Christ, not to elevate ourselves, but to serve one another. And finally, Paul makes this appeal based on change, a change in Onesimus' life. And let's look at that, but... So Paul continues his appeal from the heart for Onesimus. He's getting here now to the object, the person for whom he is appealing. Verse 10, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus. I am encouraging you for my son Onesimus. All of a sudden, there's this person in the mind of Philemon that Paul is encouraging him to receive. Beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. Onesimus. Onesimus had wronged Philemon. He'd run away and stolen Philemon's property. We might look at this today and say that justice was served on Philemon for owning a slave. The start was made to, towards restitution against Philemon. That's what the world would say today. Because Philemon owned a slave, he had to pay. Because Onesimus had run away and had stolen some of the property from Philemon, that's okay. Because it's, it's somehow balancing out the fact that Philemon owned a slave. That's not where Paul begins at all. Paul doesn't say that Philemon should receive Onesimus as a brother because justice was served. Because the balances are now even, Onesimus is a brother. No, he makes his appeal based on the profound change that took place in Onesimus' life. First of all, there's a change in status. Onesimus was a slave. He belonged to Philemon. 
Philemon owned him within the structures of the, the Roman culture and society. Philemon had rights to Onesimus based on the master-slave relationship. It doesn't excuse slavery. But this is the reality within which Onesimus was living and Philemon was living and Paul was living. But notice how Paul refers to him now. I beseech thee for my son, Onesimus. Not a slave now, but a son. That's amazing. There's been a change in status here, Philemon, for for Onesimus. I'm not calling him your slave. I'm calling him my son. I'm owning him in the gospel. I'm owning him because someone else owns him. Someone higher than us owns him now. He is owned by Christ. He's my son. Why does Paul refer to him as his son? When he had stolen from Philemon and fled, why not a former thief? Because Paul had witnessed a change in spirit. This change in status in the life of Onesimus from slave to son was because something else had happened in the interior of Onesimus's life. In his heart, there was a spiritual change. Paul says in verse 10, Whom I have begotten in my bonds, a son begotten in my bonds. Spiritual change has taken place here. Paul was in chains. He was in prison. However Onesimus got there, he was forever changed through the ministry of Paul. Paul was an instrument in the hands of the Holy Spirit to effect this change in the heart of Onesimus. The fruit of Paul's ministry in prison. As Onesimus came with his heart of sin and sat under the ministry of Paul, the Holy Spirit was at work. Paul labored. Paul was in in labor pangs, as it were, for Onesimus. The word begotten there speaks of, of birthing. I have birthed Onesimus as a son in prison. I've labored for him. I've prayed for him. I've agonized over his soul. And, and the Holy Spirit has been pleased to bless that labor on behalf of Onesimus. He had preached the gospel to Onesimus. He had mentored Onesimus in prison. He had invested in the life of a lowly slave. And as a result of Paul's faithful ministry, he's now elevated as a son of Paul, a spiritual son, a son of God. That transcended any societal labels that existed then. The Holy Spirit had regenerated Onesimus. No longer a slave, but a son. Speaks to the transforming power of grace, doesn't it? It was a change in spirit. But also a change in service. Because of the change in status and the change in his soul and his spirit, Onesimus also has become useful. He's no longer to labor as a slave for Philemon but as a servant of Jesus Christ. The word order here that Paul uses in the original is interesting and helpful. We have it in our English translation, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. In the original, it's I beseech thee for my son whom I have begotten in my bonds, Onesimus. It's building up to, to a play on words that Paul is going to use here. 
Paul raises the name of the one for whom he's appealing, Onesimus. His name literally means useful. It spoke to his status as a slave. He was designated as, as simply useful to Philemon as a slave. Philemon would have utilized Onesimus to perform certain tasks in his home. Perhaps a denigrating name for the status that was assigned to him in society through no choice of his own. But in his behavior, we read that he was anything but useful. In fact, he was useless to Philemon by running away. He had wronged Philemon. But Paul plays off his name, Onesimus, the one who was supposed to be useful. And he shows that he's a changed person. Paul says in verse 11, which in time past was to the unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. The gospel has transformed his status, his spirit, and now his service. The words that Paul uses in verse 12 refers to, to usefulness, profitableness in a personal way, not a financial way or a utilitarian way. Paul is saying there's this this fellow who caused you grief in the past, the one who stole your property, is he's been changed. He was supposed to be useful to you, but he actually proved himself useless by running away and stealing. But now he's, he's been a blessing to me. He's been useful to me in prison. He's been an encouragement to me, a source of spiritual encouragement, so I'm going to send him back to you. He can be, he can be profitable to you in a much greater way than he ever was before. The gospel has done its work, and now he's useful to you, Philemon, in an entirely new way. Onesimus has been elevated through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the instrumentality of the Apostle Paul, as he's labored and invested in Onesimus and brought him to faith. The gospel has changed him from the inside out. What does this teach us this morning? This change that has happened in the life of Onesimus. Four lessons, four takeaways to take home with us this morning. First, it teaches us that the gospel transforms from the inside out. We need to keep that in mind as we face all kinds of cultural challenges and calls for the church and for believers to engage in social justice. We can change all kinds of things in society for the betterment of people. But if we miss this point that Paul is making here, then we will never make a lasting and eternal impact on our culture or society. Our desire for change in society should never be merely desire for, for changing institutions or structures of society, as helpful as that might be. There is a place for that. Where there is wrong and where there is sinful practice, it needs to be changed. But how do we affect that change? As believers, as a church, our desire for change should aim at the souls of individuals. One by one, society is changed through the spiritual transformation of those who are slaves to sin into sons of God. That's the great hope that is set before us for our culture, for our society. 
It's not systemic change. It's not structural change of society that the the social justice warriors are calling for. It begins right here. It begins right here with individual responsibility for the souls within our care, within our spheres of influence. Let's not be content with simply outward change in society and culture, but let us labor, as it were, in childbirth, as Paul did, so that others might be won to Christ through our instrumentality. Paul could have written to Philemon and said, you better free all your slaves. What you're engaging in is, is, is systemic oppression. He could have done that. And by God's grace, over time, the social institution of slavery in Rome did fall because of Christian influences. But that was not Paul's primary aim in writing this letter. He was not out to change the social institution of slavery, though he well knew that the impact of the gospel could and would change the entire complexion, the entire face of society, where the gospel would take root in the lives and hearts of sinners. So if we want to affect change, it begins here. The gospel transforms from the inside out. Individual lives and hearts and minds. If we want to change society, if we want to change political institutions, that's a laudable aim. But it happens soul by soul, heart by heart, person by person, prayer by prayer for God to bring revival in our day. Because it's the gospel, you see. It is the gospel that's going to bring change that we need. Secondly, this change speaks to the hope of the gospel for sinners here this morning. For those who are still slaves to sin, the change in Onesimus' life gives great hope for those who are lost this morning. It speaks to the power of the gospel, the power of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit to change hearts and lives. Are you listening, my friend? To those who are speaking into your life this morning, to those who are laboring on your behalf, those who are, who are in labor, as it were, for you, praying for you, agonizing over your soul. Are you listening? Are you letting their words bring you to the feet of Christ where change is possible and real and lasting? Here's another invitation, as it were, from Christ. If salvation is possible for Onesimus, it's possible for you this morning. Onesimus was freed from the chains of sin. Christ did that for him also speaks to the willingness and the ability and the graciousness of Christ to change hearts today from serving sin to serving Christ, from being unprofitable to being profitable for Christ and for His people. Don't leave this morning thinking that you're a hopeless cause because Christ is still at work through the gospel to change hearts. 
Thirdly, this change of heart of Onesimus speaks to those who have been wronged and treated spitefully. Thinking from it, from, from Philemon's perspective now, Philemon was wronged, treated spitefully by Onesimus. Those who are, are wronged and treated spitefully by children, by spouses, by others within the body and outside of the body. It gives us hope and encouragement. That those who have been unprofitable to us, those who have caused us grief, Christ can change their hearts and lives so entirely that they become profitable to us and to other believers. That those who were sources of grief for us can now become sources of great joy for us in the Lord. Indeed, we can become brothers and sisters in Christ again or for the first time. The gospel helps us see clearly through the hurt, through the pain, through the wrong, through the loss. It encourages us. It lifts us up. It gives us hope that God is able to change hearts. Fourth, this change of heart speaks to the instrumentality of believers in the lives of others. As we speak into others' lives, believers, Do you view this, as it were, as as giving birth to children in the Lord? As elders, do we view it that way? As deacons, as parents, as leaders? This is how Paul understood his ministry. Do you understand the ministry that God has given you in your context and sphere of influence as the place where you are able to labor and give birth to spiritual children. It's hard work. It can be discouraging work. But it can also be encouraging work. Don't lose heart this morning. If Paul could say of Onesimus, he is my son, whom I have begotten in my bonds, even from prison. Paul was used as an instrument by Christ. We who are free today can be used by Christ. But the change evidenced in Onesimus' heart through Paul's ministry in the larger hand of the Holy Spirit encourage you. Encourage you to do what is right, what is proper. In receiving returning prodigals. In continuing to labor for those who are in chains of sin. Knowing that it is Christ who holds the power to change lives. So in this work, as we appeal for others, let us remember how Paul did it. As we appeal for others to do what is right, as we appeal to others to believe and repent in Christ, we at times come with the commands of Christ, with authority. At other times we come with love and we say, yet for love's sake, would encourage you to do what is right. May God help us in this work to be used as instruments in His hand so that others might be one to Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word.
We pray that thou wilt continue to let it have free course in our midst to work in its power to change hearts, to soften hearts, to bring reconciliation and peace between brothers and sisters, to bring sinners to Christ. Lord, we we pray that thou wilt use thy word in the larger hand of the Holy Spirit through the instrumentality of thy people here to bring change. One heart at a time. One life at a time. But Lord, that we would not simply be content with one heart at a time, but that will that will be pleased to come and bring revival once more. For the gospel is the power of God into salvation to those who believe. Therefore, we are not ashamed of that gospel. Help us to proclaim it boldly, graciously, winsomely, and with love so that others might know what is right and proper, that others might come face to face with Christ and be forever changed. Lord, we ask that thou wilt hear us, thou wilt help us put these words into practice now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.